Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash phc. This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Bayer has had no involvement in the selection of the speakers, the development of the activity, the agenda, or the materials. Welcome to this peer voice panel discussion on advanced gastric and esophageal cancers. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Professor Nick Pavlakis and Dr. Kohei Shatara. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm Corey Stahl from the National Cancer Center Hospital East in Kashiwa, Japan. Welcome to this activity entitled Diving into New Data in Advanced Gastric and Esophageal Cancer, but have been learned from a recent Congress. Joining me in discussion is my esteemed colleagues, Nick Pablochis from the University of Sydney in Australia. In this session, we will explore key impact through abstract presented at the recent Congresses with a focus on use of targeted therapy and immunotherapy for treatment of advanced gastric and esophageal cancers. So let me start with some introduction. Patients with gastric and GJ adenocarcinoma have high medical needs with median survival around one year with current standard chemotherapy like Fofox. Trastuzumab can be combined for high to positive disease, but it was only 15% incidence. Nivolumab improved the survival, but the survival benefit was mainly limited to patients with PDR and CPS5 or higher at the primary analysis. And in later line setting, we have a, a limited treatment option, so we need additional treatment. So first topic is anti-PD-1 plus chemotherapy. So Dr. Pablokis, could you kindly introduce new data? Uh, thank you, Dr. Stara. The uh, first study that we'll look at will be the Checkmate 649 uh, updated data, 36-month uh, follow-up presented at the ASCO GI conference this year. And this is a study that evaluated the addition of nivolumab to standard platinum-based chemotherapy. In the uh, primary analysis, the PD-1 CPS population greater than or equal to 5. Uh, the hazard ratio was 0 0.70 for overall survival. And more importantly, you can see a flattening of the survival curves. And look at the three-year uh, three landmark, 36 months, 21% versus 10% uh, for survival in favor of the addition of nivolumab. If you look at the all-randomized population, that's, uh, you'll see that the survival uh, was also in favor of the addition of nivolumab, slightly more modest hazard ratio of 0.79, and again, a meaningful landmark three-year survival superiority of 17% with the addition of nivolumab versus 10% for uh, chemotherapy alone. Progression-free survival was similarly improved and sustained in the 36-month follow-up. In the PDL1 enriched population, CPS greater than or equal to 5, which was the primary analysis. Again, we have a flattening of the curves and an absolute uh, landmark survival advantage of 5% at 36 months with the addition of nivolumab. In the uh, overall survival analysis in Checkmate 649, if you look at the subgroups that are enriched for greater benefit, particularly the microsatellite high population, this, this population clearly obtained the greatest benefit. The hazard ratio for overall survival here is 
And in the microcellulite stable population, the hazard ratio for overall survival is 0.79, similar to the overall study population not enriched for PDL1. The Keynote 859 study was another study recently reported. This was at the ESMO virtual plenary in 2022. Keynote 859 study evaluated the addition of pembrolizumab to first-line platinum-based chemotherapy in the similar population to the Checkmate uh, study. And here we saw a hazard ratio for the overall study population by intention to treat of 0.78, which is favorable and very comparable to the Checkmate 649 study in the overall population. And the landmark survival of 24 months was an absolute difference of approximately 10% in favor of the addition of pembrolizumab. Again, if you look at the enriched groups, MSI high population, the hazard ratio for overall survival was 0.34. The Rational 305 study was presented at ASCO GI this year, and it evaluated a new PD-1 inhibitor, Tislalizumab, which I'll call Tisla for short, uh, in addition to platinum-based chemotherapy compared with uh, chemotherapy alone. The overall survival population was analyzed in the PD-1 positive subset, uh, as a primary analysis, and the hazard ratio for overall survival in this study was 0.74. Um, in progression-free survival, again, an advantage was observed with the addition of Tesla to chemotherapy, and in both the overall survival and the progression-free survival analyses, there is an absolute benefit in the landmark survivals at 24 months uh, with 10% in favor of overall survival with Tesla and by uh, over 15% uh, for progression-free survival at 24 months. Dr. Shitara, uh, I presented the clinical data, but I might hand back to you now to tell us uh, a little bit about the toxicity observed in these studies. Yeah, thank you. So clinical data I'll introduce by you clearly confirms the benefit of checkpoint inhibitor uh, in gastric and esophageal cancer. But let me remind you about the toxicity. Uh, even a checkpoint inhibitor of PD-1 blocker can induce uh, IRAE, including endocrine disorders, GI toxicity, lung disease such as uh, industrial lung disease, or liver and renal dysfunction. Although the overall incidence of a severe immunorelated event uh, is relatively low, uh, we need to care about its possibility in any time during treatment. Also, it may be important to distinguish toxicity by chemotherapy and checkpoint inhibitors. Sometimes empirical treatment with a corticosteroid might be indicated. Next topic is a clothing 18.2 targeted therapy. So I will introduce some new data for this target. So first study is a spotlight. Uh, this is a, a first pivotal trial of the rapitaximab as an anti-clouding 18.2 antibody in combination with Fox for clouding 18.2 positive gastric and GG cancer. This trial showed the improvement of both PFS and over survival, as you can see here. Of not median over survival was 18.2 uh, months with uh, this new treatment, and this should be the longest median over survival in global phase 3 trial for gastric cancers. GLOW is uh, another phase 3 trial of the Zorbitaximab. Uh, this is a more China-centric trial with different country distribution compared with Spotlight. As a result, a median PFS or over survival in control arm was a little bit shorter than that of Spotlight study, 
and more close to that of previous phase 3 trials such as Checkmate 609, this overall magnitude of benefit in PFS and over survival of Zerpitoximab were very similar to those of Spotlight study. And these two data of efficacy results clearly support Zerpitoximab with first-line four folks of G-box as a new treatment option for patients with clothing positive gastric and GJ cancers. Notable toxicity of this terpitoximab include nausea, vomiting, and anorexia. And this nausea and vomiting uh, are usually very transient and usually occurred during the first administration. And some proportion of patients required those interruption or those adjustment, but generally tolerable. And the very important incidence of this nausea and vomiting apparently decreased at subsequent cycles. So our final topic is a later line treatment option for gastric and esophageal cancer. So Dr. Pablox, could you take this part to introduce new treatment? So thank you, Dr. Shitara. I've got a couple of new presentations to report. The first one is on the data from the Destiny Gastric O2 study uh, for TTDX trastuzumab deruxtecan presented at ESMO 2022. And here we see the response rate, which was the primary outcome of this single arm study, was 42% and uh, showing a disease control rate of around 81%, which is very strong. Durational response of 8.4, 8.1 months. And this is very comparable to the Destiny uh, Gastric one study, which was previously reported, confirming that the data was strong across the Western population as well. Uh, the median treatment duration was four months. Most common treatment uh, related adverse events were nausea and vomiting and fatigue. An important um, uh, toxicity to highlight was interstitial lung disease and pneumonitis, which occurred at low grade in only 2% of patients, in grade 2 and 5%. So the second uh, piece of uh, data that I'll present to you is the outcome that we presented uh, from the Integrate 2A study evaluating regorafenib versus placebo in patients previously treated with advanced gastric and gastroesophageal cancer with two prior lines of therapy. In the pooled analysis, which incorporated the Integrate 2 Phase 3 data with the previous Phase 2 data from Integrate, uh, we saw a hazard ratio of 0 0.70 in favor of uh, regorafenib over placebo. The Integrate 2A study uh, was powered in, in the end to be a standalone study. And here, our overall survival hazard ratio is 0.68. And importantly, at the 12-month landmark, there was a 19% proportion of patients alive with regorafenib compared with 6% only with placebo. Progression-free survival was also in favor of regorafenib with a hazard ratio of 0.53. And also importantly, regorafenib resulted in a longer period to deterioration of global quality of life with a favorable deterioration-free survival in favor of regorafenib over placebo. In the Integrate 2A safety analysis, we see common toxicities most likely attributable to regorafenib, such as palmar plantar dysesthesia, mild gastrointestinal toxicities, and hypertension as well. The pattern of toxicities is in keeping with previous published reports and our own Phase 2 study previously.
So let me summarize this session. Uh, so we studies support the use of anti-PD1 plus chemotherapy for gastric and GGA and benefit there uh, somehow enriched in patients with MSI high and high CPS population. Two studies show the survival benefit of the reputaxumab plus uh, chemotherapy for crowding in point positive population. This should be the important target the, uh, after approval and roughly improve the survival and the PFS and the QOL was also improved and this could be also treatment option in future. Thank you for your very kind attention. Hello, I'm Nick Pavlakis from the Ron Rochelle Hospital in the University of Sydney in Australia. Welcome to this activity entitled Evaluating the Impact of Emerging Evidence on Care for Patients with Advanced Gastric and Esophageal Cancers. Joining me in this discussion is my esteemed colleague Kohai Shitara from the National Cancer Center Hospital East in Kashiwa, Japan. In this session, we will discuss how new data will impact the management of patients with these cancer types, what questions have been answered, what questions remain, and when can additional answers be expected? How might these new data impact unmet needs within this patient population? I'll commence uh, with this treatment algorithm from the ESMO guidelines. The algorithm looks at patients with advanced metastatic gastric cancer in the first-line setting and uh, says the first thing we do is we select for the presence of uh, biomarkers such as HER2 uh, and PD-L1 uh, positivity. Patients' uh, standard of treatment is platinum fluoroperinamide doublet chemotherapy, and if patients are HER2 positive, they'll go on to receive trastuzumab, and if they're PD-1 positive, they'll go on to have the addition of nivolumab. This particular algorithm then goes on to say if you have a fantastic response, radical resection might be considered. Dr. Sitara, what do you think of the this algorithm in, in the setting of the data that we've seen with the PD-1 uh, from uh, pembrolizumab, nivolumab, and tisalizumab recently. Um, and do you agree with this algorithm? Would you do anything differently? Yeah, thank you. So I personally agree with this algorithm. Uh, for first part, for heart positive disease, this is a simple. If patient has a heart positive disease, uh, we need to use a trastuzumab. And there, oblivious, we mentioned several clinical trial the checkpoint inhibitor always exclude a patient with a heart positive disease. So, oh, this is a very simple. But for pd one positive and checkpoint inhibitor, there's uh, some controversial whether we need to use checkpoint inhibitor uh, for all comers or we need to select by PD-1 CPS status. As I previously mentioned, CPS-5 or higher population have a large benefit compared with CPS-5, but the response rate was relatively improved by CPS-5. So clearly there is some controversial. Especially regulatory approval indication is also different from the US FDA in Japan versus EMA. EMA only approved this for CPS-5 or higher. And there should be also difference in reimbursement. And the availability of checkpoint inhibitor in later line should be also different. For in Japan, we can use nivolumab in later line, but it may not be available in other countries. So it must be very important to discuss with your patient about the treatment option based on this knowledge. And with the spotlight data in the GLOW study that we recently saw as well, uh, with the, with the use of the Claudin, uh, antibody, 2 antibody, would you say that we're ready to start looking at Claudin 18.2 in addition to, uh, HER2 and PD-1 CPS now? 
Oh, yes. Uh, actually, after approval of the reputation map, I believe a clothing test should be available uh, in, in countries where uh, the reputation map is approved. So then I believe we need to test uh, all of these minor creating herd to PGA one MSI as well as a clothing positive. Because clothing positive uh, population, for example, patient with PGA1 5 could be a very good candidate for ozorbitaximab plus chemotherapy. For patients with PDR1CPS5 or higher and uh, clotting positive, this is uh, somehow difficult to design because uh, either treatment could be a reasonable option. But uh, especially low CPS and clotting positive, chemo plus ozorbitaximab could be their better choice. Although there is uh, no direct data to compare uh, these two resumes. So that's why I want to test these old biomarkers. Thank you. This brings us to another proposed treatment algorithm looking at stratification by biomarkers. Um, and uh, you've alluded to that already with the, the importance of testing for CPS uh, that we discussed DMMR and the magnitude of benefit with microsatellite high population for PDO1. What are some important things to consider when you do biopsies? prior to looking at these um, uh, biomarkers, uh, Dr. Shatara. Um, some of them, of course, are done on, on immunohistochemistry. Is that something that you consider in your uh, clinic and your hospital in terms of tissue requirements for biomarkers? Is that something we should all be considering now? Yeah. Uh, in our situation, uh, for almost all first-line patients, we do a tissue biopsy mainly through endoscopy. And uh, we, we are now routinely test these biomarkers, including HER2, MMR, CPS, clothing, Chin point tube, as well as our other expiratory biomarker. And in generally speaking, endoscopical biopsy uh, is almost always enough to do these uh, biomarkers tests because, as you mentioned, these, most of these biomarkers are based on immunohistochemistry. For example, we can test clothing by only one slide from a uh, tumor specimen. This is not NGS. So I believe we can, in most cases, we can do these tests at once because this is not NGS, which require many uh, tumor samples. But uh, nevertheless, for, for example, there are some patients who have a skiastatic gastric tumor, which have a very small uh, tu uh, tumor, a number of tumor cells within the uh, tumor tissues. In that case, maybe we need to prioritize uh, uh, these biomarkers. So maybe all that should be, uh, could be hard to MMR, CPS, as well as uh, end followed by quality based on the available data. But uh, again, in my patient, almost all uh, there is available in endoscopical biopsies. So let's look at treatment algorithm beyond the first line therapy. Again, we're looking at the ESMO. Uh, guidelines uh, algorithm here, uh, where it's recommended that in the second line setting, for patients who have no contraindications for chemotherapy or anti-antigenic therapy, and where anti-antigenic therapy ramucirumab is available, the treatment of choice is ramucirumab bactaxel. For patients who have contraindications to chemotherapy, uh, ramucirumab monotherapy is considered a, a reasonable treatment options. For patients with contraindications to anti-antigenic therapy, either bleeding or thrombotic diathesis or other issues, 
they are recommended for single-agent uh, chemotherapy, such as a taxane or rantecan. And patients, of course, who have, uh, have microsatellite high or DMMR-positive cancers who may not have received a pd one or PD-1 inhibitor up front are recommended for pembrolizumab monotherapy. Uh, but, of course, we also discussed earlier the results of the Destiny o- Gastric O2 study. And in, and in this group, one could argue that if you are HER2 uh, positive, um, and you fail trastuzumab, would it be uh, appropriate then, uh, Dr. Shatara, for that group of patients, if uh, TDXD is available, to go out to receive TDXD and then the rest of the population be treated according to this algorithm? What do you think about that? Yeah, this is a really great question because TDXD is now approved by US FDA uh, as well as our EMA. Uh, the use of a second line or later line for heart positive disease. Of note, the FDA recommends fresh biopsy to confirm the heart positive disease after failure of trastuzumab to confirm the heart status because, in general, around half of patients lost heart positive after trastuzumab on this progression. So, before using trastuzumab in, in second line, I believe. Leave biopsy to confirm heart tube status is very important. Unfortunately, in Japan, uh, we can only use TDXD or trastuzumab third line or etaline because regulatory is very strict to approve uh, based on the testing uh, one trial, which no patient at the third line or etaline. So that's why now global phase three testing uh, or four studies I'm going to compare acrotaxia under Amsumo versus TGXD. Thank you. That's true. But as the data emerges from these new studies, this algorithm will no doubt have to be amended accordingly. We might move on now to the third line setting. And again, this is the algorithm proposed by the ESMO guidelines. In the third line therapy setting, uh, the algorithm is a lot simpler. Chemotherapy is, until now has been the only option. If patients can tolerate oral therapy, uh, trifluridine tiprosil is recommended. And if patients can have um, intravenous therapy, then uh, if they've not received a taxane, they could have a taxane. Or if they've not received rinitecan, they can have a rinitecan. But of course, we reviewed recently the data for uh, regorafenib uh, versus placebo in the refractory setting. So where do you see that fitting in this schema, uh, Dr. Shitara, um, in the in the third line and beyond uh, setting. Yeah, uh, this is a somehow difficult question because there's no data uh, comparison of this all agent. And looking into uh, a hazard ratio in over survival with this agent uh, compared with placebo. Hazard ratio is very close, uh, 0.65 to 0.70. So I, I believe after availability of, of raffinib, either treatment could be option. But honestly speaking, uh, in in now institution, uh, we more prefer use identical surgery followed by FTDTPI because really bit higher response rate in historical data of identical in Japanese patient. And FTDTPI uh, has really low response rate. So, and uh, not a few patients finally tolerate oral drug in later line for gastric cancer. So, this kind of patient characteristic 
and their tumor or steroids could be taken into account to decide the treatment option. But I, I want to ask your opinion in this setting for treatment option. You no, know, I think I agree with you. I think it's a challenge. Um, this is a difficult setting because it depends on the caliber of the patient, their fitness, their ability to tolerate their, their performance status, and then what their disease burden is. I agree with you that if you have a disease burden that you want to see response for, I think you probably still have to look at intravenous chemotherapy. Most of the oral therapies, Tiflisol, Tiparacel, and also Regorafenib, primarily work by controlling disease progression rather than inducing response. And we don't have a biomarker to predict uh, whether one subpopulation will benefit more from one approach, whether it be chemotherapy or regorafenib. So I'd like to summarize our discussion. The management of advanced metastatic gastric and GOJ cancer has certainly benefited from a number of recent developments in biologic targeted therapies and the integration of immune checkpoint inhibitors in the first-line setting. We now have several studies confirming the benefit of PD-1 inhibitors to chemotherapy. Newly diagnosed patients should have tissue profiling to screen for suitably suitable uh, current available biologic therapies. And as new therapies emerge, we'll have to add additional biomarkers. And these include HO2, DMMR, PD-1, CPS, and Claudin 18.2. Therapy beyond the first-line setting currently remains empiric and is based around chemotherapy options not previously used, drug access, and patient fitness for ongoing therapy. And this includes options such as arena-tcan, taxanes, ramasturumab, TAS-102, and now we have regorafenib as a new option. I'd like to thank you all for attending and, uh, and watching this program. I hope it's been informative, and we look forward to new data and a new era for uh, metastatic gastric cancer going forward. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.